0: Aloha friends, my name is Matthew Gray. Welcome to 50 Tastes of Gray. Today's guest is Michael Fenster. He's a chef, he's a doctor, a very interesting guy. Mike is a board-certified interventional cardiologist and he's a seasoned professional chef as well. We had a lot to talk about. If you dig food, you're going to love this episode. Despite our geographical distance from one another. Michael residing in Montana and me here in Hawaii, we discovered a surprising common thread in our birthplace, which happens to be New York. Surprise, surprise. It turns out just two nice Jewish boys having a nice conversation across all these miles. In Montana, he teaches one of the leading courses on culinary medicine. Yeah, you heard that right. Culinary medicine, which showcases his commitment to integrating culinary arts with medical science. You're going to like this show. We get along really well. It's good. It's bouncy. It's upbeat. Please join us as we navigate the intriguing intersections of health, culinary arts, and science with the multifaceted Chef Dr. Mike on this episode of 50 Tastes of Grey. Thanks a lot, friends. Enjoy the show. Aloha. Michael, what have you eaten today?
1: Let's see. I had a whole wheat... uh english muffin uh, that was 100 sourdough that i had made earlier in the week from scratch uh some wonderful organic uh butter on top of that a farm fresh egg from our local csa uh which are and i've shopped you know as a professional chef i've shopped for eggs these are the most delicious eggs i've ever eaten and my guy who raises them, i gotta tell this story real quick He he's phenomenal because he's obsessed with his chickens. So he raises all the vegetables and he's got them in these fields, but he's got like this gypsy caravan for his chickens. They live inside this thing that has the wheels. So he rotates them around, you know, the fields and things. So they're never eating the same thing. So a lot of times people say, Oh, you know, it's cage free, but they're still packed in and you know, they're fed feed. They're just not literally in a cage, but sometimes they're more crowded than a cage. The, this is like beyond free range. This is like free. It's like the traveling willberries of chickens, you know, they're in their <laughs> caravan, they're cruising from pasture to pasture. Uh, so, that, so that's what, I, what I've had today.
0: So do you think that there's a lot of misinformation going on as far as labeling is concerned in the uh, big food world?
1: Oh, I, I absolutely. I gave a whole presentation uh, on that, you know, one of... The big areas in, in, in the course we teach at the university, when we get to our section about uh, we have a whole third of our courses devoted into how to to properly source. Cause we call it the art of sorcery. It's the Hogwarts part of our program where you become a sorcering wizard. And when we're talking about seafood, great mislabeling occurs there, especially when people go into restaurants and they're looking, you know, for sushi. A lot of times, if you don't have a discerning palate, what is cut and put on that plate and you're charged top dollar for is not what you're getting. One of the most common, for example, is red snapper. You'll see red snapper on a menu. A lot of times it's it's not red snapper. That's one of the most often substituted fishes. Uh, So obviously, they replace that with something that's uh, a little bit less expensive. In terms of some of the food labeling, I gave a talk this summer uh, at a a, a trade group. I was a keynote speaker, and it wasn't really popular because I didn't realize it at the time, but the example I was using was General Mills, a General Mills product, which happened to be one of the major sponsors for the entire conference. So there I was as a keynote speaker up there saying, "Hey guys," um, and and I realized that as soon as I put the slide up and you, you uh, I had a it was a cereal package and I heard this ooh from the audience and I was and I realized later on that what they would seen was that it was you know produced by General Mills. But to give an example, this stuff was really being advertised as uber healthy. Um, and I'll share with you, you know, uh, it was it's Fiber One. And you could look at it and I was like, "Like, look at the picture of this food on this label. Clearly they're not advertising it because the it's so tempting on the box cover that you're gonna wanna eat it. I mean, it, it looked like little pieces of twigs in a bowl. It was totally unappetizing. So clearly when you label something fiber one, the food isn't very appealing visually, You know, unlike the wine and cheese you've got in the background, uh, you're selling it based on a health claim, right? People are buying, that type of product because they think it's healthy. Well, it turns out that the fiber in Fiber One, for example, is made with something called carboxymethylcellulose, uh, which is manufactured from leftover pieces of wood and cotton, particularly wood chips. So unless you're a beaver, it's not particularly good for humans. The is trying to do the right thing. They think they're following you know, the proper guidelines and advice and maybe even eating something that they don't particularly care for, but I'm gonna be healthier. And yet it's 180 degrees from that. So long-winded answer to your question.
0: You know, product like that would probably be better served as kindling for your fireplace than putting (laughs) into your body, you know?
1: (laughs) Well, you know, consider it was minus three when I woke up this morning. Here in Montana, we definitely could have used some of that in the fireplace. Yeah, oh, that's bet. a good idea.
0: <laughs> I bet. I don't think you're a native of Montana. Where are you originally from?
1: I am originally from South Bronx, New York. So I'm an original native New Yorker, kind of grew up on the East Coast, uh, went to school in the South, which was great because I learned some real authentic Southern barbecue down there, particularly in Georgia, uh, North Carolina, Western, North Carolina style and came up to, we've been, uh, here in Montana. I've been here in Montana over a decade. Um, I started the culinary medicine program at the university of Montana up here, uh, which are which I'd still teach and we're working on, on continuing to build that program.
0: So, so how was it for uh, a nice New York Jewish boy to move to Montana and start studying uh, medicine and practicing uh, speaking and all of that?
1: Oh, it, it, it's it's been great. Like like most native New Yorkers, first I had to go to Florida, so I had to you know move down to Florida. It's in the fine print, York. Michael. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, but it's it's great. Uh, I absolutely love it here. I've always enjoyed nature and the outdoors and so Montana is is really you know been phenomenal and the food resources are unbelievable like I was talking about the chicken so that's one of the things that brought me up here I was like my gosh the access to this local really great food and produce is just unbelievable the one thing I do miss because I'm also a big ocean guy so you know obviously I I miss that and when we lived in Florida we lived we got that really authentic, great seafood. I had a fishmonger down the road who knew me by name, and I could go get, you know, a, a fresh uh, Gulf seafood. So I do miss the, the OSHA, particularly when it's minus three degrees.
0: Well, this is rarefied air for us because here you are a cardiologist, you're a physician in many different areas of specialty. Uh, you're also a chef. So you know a lot about the whole world of big food and big pharma. And <laughs> yeah. we don't often get to see that. So you're going to have to explain for our audience a little bit about what you believe is part of the major issue of Big Food and Big Pharma, because we all know that doctors don't get a lot of nutritional education while they're growing up and going through school. And therefore, the information that they're giving patients when we walk into their offices is bleak at best. So how do you resolve that now when you're speaking with audiences and people who want to find health, perhaps through nutrition?
1: I'll start with the first part, which is so where are these connections, and I see it in a very detrimental light um, in that they're connected so you have big food industry you know big snack big soda big food that is built for profit and and nothing wrong with that i have absolutely no no issue with that but as you said in crafting and constructing foods that are built for profit and by necessity those foods that are built for profit are basically engineered for addiction looking at things like including unwanted or undesirable fats added sugars things that stimulate our reward center in a way much like drugs, because they want you to come back and buy their hamburger over their competitor's hamburger. Mm -hmm. So we understand that. Unfortunately, that has become pervasive due to, again, some of the marketing effects because they're built for low cost, which means they don't use quality ingredients. They're built for long shelf life to increase profitability. These things have morphed over really the last 75 years since really the end of World War II. We've seen this sort of exponential increase to the point where now, these ultra processed foods which as we teach in our course we have a specific definition for so we don't just kind of throw that around loosely and and i make a point of that because you'll hear people who are talking for the big food industry say well we have to have processed foods and you know when you make flour you're processing a food absolutely but those are not ultra processed foods so there's a specific definition and category and characteristics that we go into. And it's these ultra processed foods that now make up, you know, 60, almost 70% of the average american's diet and therein lies the trouble mm-hmm. so you have this massive industry that's run on an international conglomerate level pushing these food uh to the point you know when we look at emerging economies we find that that's where they're stepping in because now third world countries there's discretionary income boom we're in there pushing these ultra processed products and sure enough then you start to see what we call the diseases of civilization or the chronic disabilities, disease, obesity, type two diabetes, heart disease, inflammatory bowel disease, becoming much more and more prevalent. When we look at data that says, and this isn't Chef Dr. Mike's data, you can go to the American Heart Association webpage, and you'll see that 80% of all heart attacks, the number one killer in the United States, are preventable with lifestyle modification, like diet, exercise, culinary medicine. When you go, this is data from Harvard, again, not my data, that 90%, 90% of all cases of type two diabetes are preventable with lifestyle modifications like culinary medicine, exercise, diet, et cetera. Yet we never see these being promoted, which is kind of my segue into the other half of that equation or actually the the other bookend from which we're getting sandwiched in the middle, which is Big Pharma. They don't promote this. They want you to buy another drug. I had this experience firsthand through a colleague of mine, a great guy, a friend of mine who was a chef, became diabetic for lifestyle reasons, really addressed diet and got him, cured himself. He doesn't take medication anymore. He monitors, he watches, but he's not on any kind of medication and his hemoglobin A1C is normal. So now, because we've had such success with diet and lifestyle modification, we actually have a definition of a type 2 diabetes cure, which most people aren't aware of, which is, a normal hemoglobin a1c over a period of time at least three months mm-hmm. those people much like with gestational diabetes have to be aware they're at increased risk should they stray back that they can quickly be in trouble but they don't take medications they've got a normal hemoglobin a1c diet exercise etc is what's what's managing it he did a tv show that he asked me to be on i was getting funding for it and i was at that time i was in academic cardiology so i had I was doing a lot of clinical trials with stent devices and things for all these big companies, knew all the, the pharma companies, as you said, had a lot of connections. And I said, you know, I'll talk to them because all I ever hear is how they're interested in helping us prevent and address this. It was mind, Matthew, it was mind-blowing to me. And I am embarrassed to admit my naivete. When I went in there and I said, hey, you know, th- he's gonna do a show, it's gonna get go on the Discover channel. And we're going to show people how to manage their diabetes, things other than drug. And I paused so you can hear the crickets that I heard when it came to donating to that. My friend also had a screening truck, a sort of like a, a, a big food truck, but it was used for screening di- diabetes. Mm-hmm. And they were standing in line to give him money to do that because when he diagnosed new diabetics, he found new customers for them. And immediately they would be put on medications to get their hemoglobin A1C down into control. So not a dime, literally not a dime for the prevention that they always mouth about, right? Uh, Here and we're dedicated this and that. They were dedicated to screening because it got them new customers, but not dedicated to a cure. So really we have pressure from both sides where we have a food industry that is making us sick. And then, when we get ill, part of the solution, and I'm not saying certainly as interventional cardiologists, somebody comes with a heart attack, I'm putting a stent in, I'm giving them the powerful medications we have. You know, one of the rules of of medicine being born of of the battlefield is stop the bleeding, right? We have to stop that heart attack. Myself and, and a lot of my colleagues, we get tired of changing tires when everybody comes in with a flat tire and we change it, put a new tire on and, and they drive out and it's broken glass and nails they are going on. And we say, hey, make a right turn here. There's no glass and, and nails on the road, you know? Uh, so we have the, the pharmaceutical industry that is not helping us in terms of a holistic or a non-pharma solution. And what's being drilled into doctors' heads uh, and being supported by the pharma industry, one of the largest lobbies, along with big food, to the government and to Congress is this idea of just push another pill. Right. And particularly, you know, when metrics and doctors and hospitals are getting paid by, hey, they had a heart attack. Did they get this drug? Did they get dra- that drug? Did you put them on this? There's no question. Did you teach them how to make their own English muffins? You yeah. know, et cetera.
0: That's so funny that you say that because, uh, and I've mentioned this to a lot of people, because in the last three years, since the COVID shit show took down my business, I've been helping people with their diet and and fighting disease and, and getting off of meds and so on. And I, I'll just approach people and I'll say, when was the last time you visited your doctor and he asked you what you eat? Never, <laughs> never is the answer. And it's always been like that. It's like, it's always about you guys. And I'm going to say you guys. Um, yes. It's all about getting the patients in and getting them the hell out in a real short period of time, writing the appropriate medication for what you believe is happening, but never ever approaching the health through nutritional basis. For instance, if you take me for an example, some years back, I was 100 pounds heavier than I am now, and I was on half a dozen medications and I had type two. I just got sick and tired of being sick and tired, and I took it under my own care because I think I know a lot more than than many of the big corps and many of the big universities who are doing studies. I mean, when Harvard does a study, I don't believe them because they're Harvard. And when Tufts University tells me that Honey Nut Cheerios is one of the healthiest things you can be eating for your heart, I think to myself, there's so much BS going on here that you have to really take it on to yourself and, and learn this whole thing so really what I did for myself and I want to hear what your response is on this is that I went into the land of keto which really I reduced my carbohydrates significantly and I started doing intermittent fasting and you know what here I am all these years later hundred pounds less in my way I'm on no medications I have no type 2 I feel better than ever clearer than ever I'm much more together much stronger and happier and that's all I have to say the fact that I'm doing the intermittent low low carbs, I ferment my own foods at home. I'm doing all the things that are right, but that is not shared with us by universities and physicians and so on.
1: I agree. And, And first of all, I'd say nobody knows more about their own health and their own body any individual. And one of the differences in our culinary medicine approach is to put the individual at the center of the table. It's their table. We're a guest. And because there are so many other aspects we can never know that shape our diet and how we approach diet, experiences growing up with food, over food, personal taste preferences, uh, people in your house. You may be the one who cooks, you may not be the one who cooks, etc. So we have to put the individual at the center. And you're right, because the traditional approach in medicine is very, very dictatorial. And it's dead. Our approach is, hey, Matthew, what do you like to eat? Is it pizza? OK, let's figure out how we can do that. And, and I say that be, not to be snarky, but in truth, because what is important and what we have found certainly in our approach is that most of what the approach has been over the last 50, 75 years, unfortunately, has been wrong. And it's simply not intentionally, but we didn't appreciate it. We didn't recognize it. And that gets back to the ultra-processing. To give you an example, one of my favorites, right, P- pizza. You can read anywhere, and any nutrition RD will tell you, don't eat pizza. It's one of the 10 worst foods you could possibly put in your body ever. And if you order a chain and you get it topped, I know where you are, so you get it topped with that's a delicious coating of Spam.
0: <laughs> now you're talking, uh, baby.
1: Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and that is It will truly be one of the 10 worst things you could put in your body. However, if you and I head to Naples and we're getting one that's, you know, the organic local flour. So the the crust is water, flour, yeast, salt. The topping is crushed tomatoes and salt and a topping of, you know, fresh buffalo mozzarella, some basil, maybe some parma ham, whatever on there. That is one of the most healing foods you could possibly eat. And I say that with some authority because just a few weeks ago, an Italian study came out and actually looked at that. Ultra-processed pizza separated out and what we, we use, what's called the NOVA classification versus the homemade, which is, or from scratch, as I just described. And big difference in your risk of heart attack and overall mortality. So that approach of understanding these, the effects of ultra-processing, these foods for profit, if you will, has been unrecognized for decades, decades. So we have these this momentum, this guideline, and certainly a push because most people are unaware how much funding big food does for those nutritional publications that come out. And so there's influence in the background. There's a lack of knowledge just a few years ago, I gave a speech at a college that trains dietitians, and it was during the COVID shit show, as you mentioned. So you can see the little, you know, comes in on the chats, and the, the dietitian students text me, you know, on the in the chat of Zoom, "What is an ultra processed food?" And this is a person go out, going out to advise. So yeah, a lot of issues there. Your approach, and one of and, and one of my good friends is, is Sean Wells, who is an incredible nutritionist, and Sean is one of the leading worldwide experts in keto. And I used to do a radio show uh, with Sean. We were both guests. We have this very common understanding because Sean would tell me, he said, you know, I'm a keto guy. I was like, of course, uh, you're one of the world experts. He said, but people don't really, it's very difficult to stay on for a lifetime. And he said, and, and I certainly see it's very effective, especially in the strategy, where, which you do, which is intermittent fasting, which totally agree with. We can get into that in a minute. Great. But the what you see with the keto approach is that you're taking out the ultra processed food. That's what's really eliminated, which is the, the breads, the rolls, the, the sweets, uh, those sorts of things. In fact, in a study I just analyzed to share with our students over the weekend, this study used data from what's called the PURE trial, which is one of the largest observational cohorts ever done. In, in the history of, of nutritional studies. So 21 countries around the world, over hundred, I think over 130,000 people where most people say, oh yeah, so if you're eating ultra processed food, it's that bag of chips, it's the candy bar, it's the drive through burger. They said overall, and in every single country, the number one source of ultra processed foods was sweeties, cakes, pastries, and bread. So when you take that out, which I basically is becomes almost a keto approach, you've eliminated those. So Sean and I would have this back and forth where for people that needed, particularly lose weight as a strategy, jump on keto, combine intermittent fasting, get where you are. And then what we offer in terms of our culinary medicine approach is really that more sustainable diet for the rest of your life, which is all about what you eating, what you want to eat that makes you happy in a way that makes you happy and with whom it makes you happy.
0: You know, I I love that approach, but I'm also somebody who understands, have you heard the acronym SAD for standard American diet, the SAD diet? So when people take a look at that and they say, you know, there's nothing wrong with these oranges are organically grown and I'm going to have a glass of orange juice. So that means that's the equivalent of about 10 oranges squeezed. That kind of a sugar bomb is can in any way be healthy for people, no matter how good those oranges are to begin with, right?
1: Yeah. And, and a lot of what's labeled as organic, again, is is to go back to your earlier point, is this misdirection. So if something says organic on the label uh, and it doesn't say like 100 percent or it's a produced product, let's say, you know, made from several things, only 75 percent of that even has to contain organic components. So 25 percent of it can be totally ultra processed garbage. But if it's 75 percent organic, the government allows them to put organic on the label. And as you just uh, highlighted, right, one of the big things are these organic organic energy bar right it's totally ultra processed mm-hmm. stuff that is not good for you yet it says organic on the label people are like oh you know this so-and-so's energy bar I'll have this and this will be a good replacement for lunch and they're eating the worst thing one of uh, somebody I work with who is a professional cyclist had been taking our course and he said Mike I'm really angry at you and I was like okay why is that he said because after we covered this stuff about ultra processed food, I had to throw out about twelve boxes of energy bars that I had in my pantry because that's what you know I was living on, and I would take it, you know as my cycling you know go to snack. And now I realize that that's not good for for me at all. So. Right, and
0: those things are expensive. You don't want to have to throw <laughs> that away. <laughs>
1: but what well, they are, yeah, yeah. yeah and, and that's a, that's another great point is that. You know, again, some of these things that are labeled that organic, that are not necessarily great for us, are totally ultra processed. One of the things we teach, you know, in our kind of practical medicine c- culinary medicine approach is like, how do we recognize these things as we're, uh, you've pointed out with the packaging, et cetera. And there are a couple of danger zones in the supermarket where over about or over 90% of the things that fit in this supermarket category are ultra processed foods. Mm-hmm. One of those categories is vegetarian food. So people don't realize how ultra processed they are, particularly now that they're looking at things like plant-based meats or your plant-based sausage so all sorts of those types of things and a lot of those foods, people buy vegetarian thinking, oh, I'm doing a good thing for the planet. I'm doing a good thing for the environment. I'm doing a good thing for me. Um, with, they do it with all the right reasons, but they're eating one of the worst foods they could possibly consume because it's ultra processed. Right. And in many ways, monocrop agriculture is is a big problem in the environment as well, which they're often not made aware of on that on the other side of that.
0: Yeah, you know, a, a lot of those ultra processed products, I can understand that- the morality and the ethics side of someone wanting to go to a vegan diet or to be able to then choose things that are off the shelf that are being designed to sit on a shelf. It can't be good. And that that is the essence of what ultra processing is.
1: Absolutely. And in culinary medicine, one of the things that we look for, and, and you I were talking about it earlier, is it's not a linear approach. So this, the traditional nutrient centric approach is very linear and very focused right so that we're drilling down to the magnesium and how the percent carbs etc but let's face it you and i eat food It's, it's about it's about real food we don't eat a percentage of macronutrients that's that's we eat food and so it's understanding that food experience from when we consume it to the food that we buy and it needs to be produced in a responsible, sustainable way. And for anyone that you know thinks vegan plant food is the answer, I challenge them to go sit at a, at a monocrop agriculture. And, and I've been to them on Hawaii when we visited. Yeah. And what you find is there's no birds, there's no bugs, there's nothing living. So you think how, how much death you're growing these plants that, that wouldn't exist in the soil without all these additives being pumped in. I I read an interesting study that had to do specifically with Hawaii because of, they were talking about the runoffs from the agriculture, the plant-based uh-huh. agriculture, into and around local schools and causing issues because of the chemical contamination. Okay. And what they said is that if they applied the native Hawaiian method of agriculture, you guys could feed three times the current island population. Right. So the right. idea that regenerative type agriculture can't feed us because it doesn't provide enough food is simply not true. They've done this extensive work in this in Brazil and shown that you can get near years. I talked to some of our wheat farmers who I know in the Dakotas over here who switched over to regenerative agriculture And there is a lag. They said the first several years, you will not get the production Mm -hmm. because you have to basically your soil has been poisoned and you have to get the soil back to being healthy. And that takes, they said, about five years. Uh, But after five years, they said the yields that they are getting are not only equivalent to what they got when they use commercial products, but can be more profitable for the farmer because they no longer have to buy GMO products that are resistant to the herbicide. So again, this is something that big agriculture, something we had to talk about, is not really in enthusiastic about they don't want to see this supported because it's in direct opposition to their business plan uh monsanto isn't making money from roundup that came off pat years ago yeah. their main focus are, are gmo plans So they're now talking about adding the initial GMOs were just resistant to Roundup or or glyphosate. But they're talking about plants now that have genetic abnormalities to make them resistant to like seven pesticides and herbicides at once. Now, I could tell you, and this was a 2019, I believe, don't hold me to that, but it was around there. Mm -hmm. A congressional study looked at blood sampling U.S. population and found that there are detectable levels of glyphosate in 90% of the American public. Yep, so the people said, well, you know, oh, I, I don't, I, you won't find it. Nine out of 10 people have detectable levels. And we know that that, that has effects. So it accumulates in the plants. We eat lots of those plants, it comes into us. So it's complex. There's not an easy solution like eat vegan, plant-based food, this or that. It's complex because, and, and in a way, I think this is powerful. It highlights that we are connected to the earth. Mm-hmm. We we can't just do these things in isolation. We really need to get back to working with nature.
0: Yeah, I think that there are a lot of problems with the monocrop aspects of farming because these farmers, they have to pay attention to the almighty buck. They also have to pay attention to yield. They want to feed the world. And yet every few years, really, you need to plan something else there, right? So you can keep the soil, you can keep the culture in a healthy kind of state, but that's not happening. A lot of these people just keep growing soybeans or just keep growing wheat. So there's so many different issues that we need to tackle and address here
1: yeah, absolutely. And it's, it's fascinating to me to be in the state that I'm in. So I was speaking with a professor who studies pine beetle. And what was interesting to me was she what she was telling me how the the forest is this incredibly complex ecosystem where the pine trees who are infected will signal both by root and sending things out and by air to communicate to other pine trees and other trees and then how they, this forest ecosystem works particularly within the first you know several inches of the soil so that trees are dependent on on communication and interaction with fungi now that might not seem like a big deal but it's an, a huge deal because you actually have two different species and you have plants that are trading so plants will send down products of photosynthesis to the roots to exchange glucose and and other products, photosynthesis products with the fungi who then exchange with them, you know, minerals and other things that the plants need. And if we stop and think about that for a minute, wow, that's, that's not this tree in isolation, just pulling everything it needs in and of itself. So there's this vast communication network that goes on. We have the same thing going on inside ourselves with our gut bacteria. And everything that we take in is affecting them. And that in turn is affecting us. And even to the degree that it can infect our moods, I'll give you the Space Invaders update, to, which was really fascinating. So a study, and this was actually done in mice, showed that the level of exercise endurance, which you think, right, it's it's all us. And we're humans. It's all uh-huh. our mental dig down, is affected by the type of bacteria we have in our gut. So if you get the right type of bacteria in your gut, they secrete... Something during your exercise that is communicated via the vagal nervous plexus to your brain, which causes your brain to secrete something that prevents dopamine from being broken down. Dopamine is our reward center Mm -hmm. and is responsible for what we call the runner's high. So what they demonstrated is in mice with sick bacteria they couldn't exercise very long or very efficiently because they didn't have the bacteria versus the mice that were fed certain things and had these good bacteria got on this positive feedback cycle where they could exercise longer because of the bacteria in the gut which brings us back to saying like who's zooming who right right
0: (laughs) you know and that's exactly the reason i began doing home fermenting because you know there is a connection between the brain and the gut ever since i began doing that michael i'm feeling that much better. And there's just no substitute for having a good microbiome going on. And and the connection to the brain is just now finally coming out.
1: It is. And, and, you know, I read an interesting piece where somebody explained in a way that really made sense to me, which is our gut. uh, And most people don't appreciate, like, you know, I have a cat that's super smart and I've had dogs before and, and I consider them their own functioning sentient beings, our gut has the neuronal processing power of our cat or dog. So it is its own thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's got that much neuronal computing capacity. And it makes sense that it had to, because it's really our first brain. So when we're little single-celled or multi-celled organisms, the most important thing we could do is find food. So this brain down here is all about that. And it's almost like this second brain was built to support getting food to that first brain. Right, is,
0: right. You know,
1: all about it. And so, yeah, well, and, and you're so right, because, again, I can remember back in the dark ages of my medical school education, <laughs> because I go that far back, that, you know, Back I, I was, when the uh, earth was cooling. Yes, yes, yeah. yes, exactly. We were talking about, you know, we, we would see live stegosaurus with their, you know, hindbrain. Uh, right. There's Michael. <laughs> <laughs> and there's me in the picture. Right. Uh, you know, they, they told us that bacteria were nothing more than they happened to live there because we would eat stuff that we couldn't digest. And they got a free lunch. And that's that's all they did. And we know now they're essentially another organ. And we were told that, you know, the brain dictates to the gut what to do. It's kind of a top-down communication one way. And now we know it's more like the, the Florida freeway at rush hour, which is packed with traffic going back and forth. In
0: all directions right uh, consisting primarily of people from New York who moved down there so I, there's a <laughs> there's a tie-in there somewhere
1: <laughs> absolutely <laughs> yeah.
0: so you know the other day I was reading something or or watched a, a YouTube and they were talking about climate change and they were talking about how that's affecting crops and they're talking about something that's very near and dear to me champagne and the champagne grapes that are growing in France are having to move northbound because of the climate change that's taking place and in the not too distant future Champagne grapes are going to be growing in the southeast of England instead of in the northwest of France. And that all has to do with the climate change. And so what do you make of that kind of a thing? And how can you assert yourself to be able to try to help change that when it comes to food output?
1: Well, a couple of things. One is to, I think, to keep that in perspective. So th- that actually already happened in the period of the Viking. So around 700 uh, AD, for about a thousand years, there was uh, several hundred years that Global warming it was called the little warming and i think actually that is what changed the seas etc and allowed the vikings to explore and conquer as they did and at that time it became so warm that they could actually grow wine grapes in england mm-hmm. which they couldn't do before and it also it, it changed in important ways because you the ability to grow wheat moved up as well so scotland ireland particularly scotland for example you see historically a lot of oats because they can grow oats and barley because they can grow where wheat cannot because wheat requires it to be a little bit warmer right. and in fact the whole Viking settle, settlements initially in Greenland was because of global warming and so you see this flux because obviously it, it cooled back off one of the best books uh, and objective viewpoints on global warming I've read was written by a paleontologist and the reason being that he had this perspective of not 60 years from 1960 to now or, or whatever but he had the perspective of millions of years mm-hmm. and said look here's these bike and etc cetera, etc cetera. and so there's no doubt as he as he came to a conclusion which made said he said there's no doubt that we are warming but that's normal and that's mm-hmm. as we see in, in the history that's what the earth does it's warmed it's cold it's warmed it's cold etc right the question is are we contributing to it if so to what extent are we impacting it and then really instead of blaming and arguing about it what can we do to cut that down does that make sense regardless mm-hmm. of whether you think we're in global warming or you're going to argue against it, certainly taking a tact of, hey, let's reduce what we can do, makes sense. You know, from food perspectives, again, comes into an aspect that we cover in culinary medicine. We call it our zero waste kitchen approach. To get back to what you were alluding to, right? We look to things that are raised sustainably. And by that, I mean, preferably in a regenerative agriculture model I spoke to earlier. When we look at some of the data that's come out of Brazil in this, what we find is that that results and they're producing beef, they're producing egg, they're growing all sorts of different vegetable and fruit production on commercial scales. What we find is that results in net carbon sequestration. Why? Because we're mimicking the natural environment. The cattle, for example, don't stay in one place, Stuffed together in a concentrated animal feeding operation, which is not natural and abuses the land and the soil, they're moved from field to field to field, which to go back again, you know, here in Montana, 200 years ago, we had 60 million bison, but the bison weren't packed in a feedlot, not able to move, right? Right. The bison ranged and they aerated the soil, they fertilized the soil. So replicating natural, mimicking the natural environment taking a lesson from nature and working hand in hand with it, we end up sequestering the carbon, as opposed to you and I talked about the monocrop agriculture, which still emits net carbon into the atmosphere. So, it's not a a panacea. It's sort of maybe, and there's a lot of debate about this because a lot of the data out there saying, well, you know, it takes this much to produce a steak versus raise an ear of corn, Mm -hmm. you're ignoring nutrient density. So, one cow feeds a thousand people, right? Right. That's a lot of ears of corn. You know, 30 to 50% of what we buy in a supermarket winds up in a landfill, right? So, we got to fix that. Wow. And we can fix that. So, uh, just a lot of things, and we can do it in a way that improves our health. Today, I, I was sharing with someone earlier, right? If you cook with herb, you have rosemary, uh, just as an example, and we're using it, we're taking the rosemary leaves off. You get that little woody fewer left, mm-hmm. right? So save it because you could put fish and meat and vegetables on it and it will infuse a rosemary flavor into your food. So all of a sudden, you're not wasting that. Heat up some olive oil, throw the rosemary sticks in there, mm-hmm. and uh, all of a sudden, you've got rosemary flavored oil that you can use, olive oil, for example. When you buy organic carrots and they come with those bright green tops, funny story about carrots, carrots, as we ate them, in ancient classical times, people threw away the roots. They actually ate the carrot greens. Oh, no kidding. Uh, no, because the, the the initial roots were kind of these little wee things. Uh-huh. So you ate carrot greens. The common orange carrot that we think about today in the last several hundred years developed by the duck, where we ate the root, and now we start throwing away the greens. But the greens actually contain more vitamins than, than the root does. So you think, hey, eat carrots because you get all this vitamin A. The, the green part actually is more concentrated in vitamin A than the root. And has a wonderful carrot flavor. So you know, again, pulling out the chefy stuff because right. when I ran the kitchen, you can't waste food. You use everything because that's your bit, one of your big differentiators between a profitable restaurant and shuttering the doors is kitchen waste. So oh, yeah. you learn, right? So you take those greens, blanch them, and you can make a wonderful pesto that you can spread on on breads and dips and things like that and so you're buying a more expensive product an organic vegetable to get that benefit the vitality of that orange you that you see really does correlate to the nutrition level Mm -hmm. when you buy conventional maybe maybe not because they can spray it with orange dye oh yeah so uh we buy that we, we get these bright but we save those greens and we can do pesto when you peel that carrot, put it in a Tupperware with a, what we call the trim—the the tops and the tails of the vegetables—and then on a Sunday, throw all the things that you've accumulated all week into a big pot with some leftover bones, and you've got a bone broth because that's how we make restaurant stock. Right. Set it on the simmer for four minutes, skim it off, and you've got this bone broth that the celebrity bone broth, Matthew. No, not a word of a lie. I priced it for $15 a quart. Wow. Now, what I just described would cost you maybe five cents because it's essentially all the stuff you would have thrown away.
0: We're in the wrong business, Michael. <laughs>
1: <laughs> we, we we definitely we definitely are, man. If, I, if I'd be selling stock at $15 a quart, and to your earlier point, you don't even know that you're getting bone broth. Mm -hmm. because according to the government there's no difference between bone broth stock and just a regular broth which may not contain any bits of bone at all and the healing aspects of the bone broth that people tout and you know they have all these regimens really has to do with a lot of the collagens and other things That come out of those bones that are being just simmered for hours and hours to extract those minerals and the collagen content, etc. And when you buy it in a box, just because it says bone broth, again because of the labeling laws, it may not be bone broth. It may not be stock. It it may not contain any bone. The government, nobody's going to get in trouble if they're selling you something that contains no bone.
0: Please give us your definition of culinary medicine, because that's fairly new on the horizon. And I know that you've been practicing that for a while, but let our listeners know exactly what that is.
1: So uh, the 50 cent version, right? So we we teach it at the university, which means, you know, when I was proposing this, uh, we had to get it approved by faculty senate, which means it has to sound really fancy, and be very specific. So we say you know, it is a multidisciplinary, evidence-based approach to selecting ingredients and techniques used in preparing foodstuffs with the goal of achieving and maintaining health and wellness. That is a word salad, a 50-cent word salad there. In practicality, what it's all about, Matthew, it's all about you, right? It's a, We focus on the individual's relationship to food. Every time we sit down to eat, it's a food experience.
0: The next time we have you on, I want to talk I want to talk about the things that we're all aware of right now, about the killing of sentient beings to be able to feed the world and pressures that are put on the producers of food. And do you think that there's going to be some time down the line, 10 years, 20 years, when we just say to ourselves morally, ethically, we just can't handle doing this anymore? I'm nowhere close to a vegan or a vegetarian, but still, those concerns are heavy in my heart and high in my brain.
1: Yeah, I, I will not purchase anything that's industrially mass-produced. That's a CAFO, a concentrated animal feeding organization. Mm-hmm. Um, I will do with less meat, or less a steak, less often, or a smaller portion to a certain that animal that gave its life for me. Because when we eat something, living died so that we can eat. Whether it be a plant, an animal, or a fungi, and as we can talk in that hour, it's disturbing how we're learning that plants may have a form of sentience, right. that's just different to us. One thing I can do is not support those methods.
0: Dozen eggs that was a dollar five years ago is now $10. Yeah. Uh, you can see how there's gonna be a little bit of interplay there for the planet to be able to, how, how am I gonna to afford to feed my kids, you know?
1: Yeah, and, 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 it, and it comes to, as you said, how about these people that relied on those eggs for a buck 50, a dozen, now they can't afford them. So where do we, you know, we, we need to make sure that healthful food is equitable. It was within reach for all. So yeah, the, a lot of things, we, you know, we could cover in, in that next time. Cause, cause all those things, you're right. There, there aren't easy answers right. and there, it's not like just do this and turn the light switch on, uh, but we have to talk about them. I, and Matthew, so thank you for bringing that up. Cause we do, and we we do have to have reasonable, intelligent.
0: I want to talk a little bit about the creativity of cooking and, and what took you from, from loving food and uh, aroma and plate architecture and color over into medicine what was that transition like for you
1: it's a it's a duality that i've always appreciated as you and i were, were speaking you know earlier it, it's not a a linear relationship it's a circular relationship so to put it in food terms it's an eastern approach to to flavor so when you sit down when i alluded to that when in my youth i was you know over in japan uh, studying martial arts. Flavors over there, you get uh, sweet, savory, salty, you know, all at once, you know, in a meal, in mm-hmm. a bite. Whereas a Western, and I was trained in a, in a classical kind of French brigade system. So you start with the salad and, it, and you go very savory and you have a sweet dessert mm-hmm. at, at the end. You have a sweetie at the end. So a very linear progression to the meal. and And so for me, there is an art, to the food, the creativity, all the things that you mentioned, um, but there's also a hard science to it, right? There's, I was a big sourdough guy before COVID. I just want to make that clear. Uh, (laughs) Okay, you're excused. (laughs) Thank you. But, you know, the, the science that goes into uh, all that. So that influences, you know, my cooking.
0: When you're in the kitchen, you're absolutely in your Zen place. Are you a- ever able to locate that Zen place in your medicine? Or is it just a different kind of connection that has to take place?
1: When I do a acute, I can be when I'm doing sort of analytical, uh, like I'm reviewing studies and things I can kind of get in. The zone. And when I write about it, it can be very Zen but man, it's head down arse up, uh, sort of Zen. I think we came up with something new here, Matthew. We'll call it pressure Zen or Zen under pressure.
0: Exactly, it's not all about like being sleepy and yeah, being relaxed, thought... it's about being focused and be, yeah. uh, it's about doing something in the moment, but yeah. without a lot of internal pressure, right? Yeah. I think the Buddhists call it wakeful tranquility. So it's being able to, What I think they call that mindfulness nowadays. It's just so funny where they pull from, right? What's for dinner tonight?
1: I have made shepherd's pie, but and instead of the beef, local grass-finished bison. Uh, yeah, so we've got a bison. We've got uh, some potatoes from our, our local CSA. And again, cottage pie uh, for, for dinner this evening.
0: We have lots more to cover, and I hope that you'll come back real soon. Oh, do, I, I, thank you so much for spending time with me today. Thank you. And um, I'll put down in the show notes where people can get a hold of you if you'd like that. And uh, Absolutely. You know, a nice little side profile shot of you, whatever. <laughs> and um, so, thanks. So,
1: thank you, Matthew. Looking forward to catching up again, mate.
0: Thank you so much for being on oh, the show. My just really yeah, appreciate. Yeah, You had fun.
1: Oh, okay, great. great time. I love the, the. I just like the format you had. Let's have some questions. Let's see where it goes. Let's just have fun and hang out.
0: Yeah, so. I mean, this is the kind of thing that we could do over, you know, a couple bottles, and that's uh, exactly
1: what well, that. Would you? I, that's exactly what I was saying. It's like next time I'm bringing a glass of wine.